invite you to return uh, in your scriptures to Mark chapter 11. We are continuing our series examining the gospel of Mark. Uh, We've entitled the series Unexpected as we have sought to uh, look at Jesus' life as Mark presents him uh, and as he presents him in a very unexpected way. Uh, We are in, this is part number 24, uh, and we are entering upon Mark 11, which begins what we now know as Holy Week, the week in which Jesus will spend the the days prior to his uh, phony trial and crucifixion, and eventually his resurrection and ascension as well. It's fascinating to me, if you look at this week, especially as it's recorded here in Mark, at just how much time Mark uh, spends on the details and events of this week. If you notice, it's chapter 11. Mark has 16 chapters in his gospel. So roughly a third of his book is spent just on one week of Jesus' life. If you go to the Gospel of John, it's actually much more heavily weighed on Holy Week. It's actually roughly half of the Gospel of John is spent going through the days of this one week. Seven days, which is very interesting to me. It might be obvious for us, us who are in the year 2020, on on this side, uh, so to speak, of the cross and the empty tomb and all those sorts of things, to understand just why this week is so significant. We know exactly what's going to happen. We know the course of events. We know what Jesus is going to say, or rather not say. And we know why it's important that this week is here presented to us in such great detail. But imagine... uh, If you were in this day and age reading a, quote, biography of the Lord Jesus, and you read it and it spends so much time in this week, you might not understand what the author is doing. And then that way, these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very much unlike any other biography you will ever read. Because they spend so much time on one week of their central figure's life. Seven days, give or take. And of course, that's because the Gospels are not really biographies. We noted this at the beginning of the study, uh, of our study of the Gospel of Mark, that the the Gospels as they're presented in Scripture are not really biographies in the technical sense of the word, in that they don't present to you every single uh, moment of Jesus' life. We have no record of Jesus' teenage years in the Gospels. They go straight from his birth to his uh, early years of public ministry. Or even in Mark's case, we don't even get a a record of his birth at all. It just goes straight into Jesus' public ministry. So it's, in that sense, they are not biographies. Actually, uh, if you, I think it's easier and better to look at the Gospels more like literary essays. Because an essay, if you're, if you're writing an essay, which I've written several for seminary this semester, uh, you have to formulate a thesis. Here's my central point. Here's my, what's going to drive my narrative. Here's my theme. And here's all of the proofs and evidences and examples of that theme being played out. And that's exactly, I think, what you have in the Gospels. That each Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is presenting you with a thesis about their Lord Jesus. And they're showing it to you by all of the events that they record. So this is why John, for instance, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's okay. That's why John, for instance, records uh, so many miracles in his gospel. Miracles that aren't recorded in the other gospels. 
Why? It's because he's trying to show you the very fact that Jesus is God. He has power over nature. He is God manifested in the flesh. And of course, Mark's thesis is showing you Jesus as the servant. The servant king who fulfills all the prophecies, yes, but he serves his people. Such is why uh, I think the, the most essential verse... In Mark's gospel is the one we covered last week, Mark 10, 45, where he, Jesus comes right out and says it. That the Son of Man, he says in verse 45 of chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. And in that way, you can see all throughout Mark's gospel, he's proving that theme. That Jesus is the true and the better servant. But regardless of the theses that make up the Gospels, each one, all of them, all of them find culmination, fulfillment in this week. That's why all of them end here. They all end by exploring the details of Holy Week. Why? Because their entire thesis and theme finds its ultimate illustration in this week. The week, I would hasten to say, a one week which changes human history forever. This one week changes human history forever. And such is why we, as Christians and churchgoers, can spend so much time reflecting on the events of this week. We can spend uh, countless years exploring everything that happened during these seven roughly days because this week changes everything. In the course of seven days, every sinner can find life in the death of this Messiah who serves ultimately to the end. In the course of seven days, all of the glories and the blessings of redemption and deliverance are brought to light and brought to completion by our Lord Jesus. And no one could have imagined that. No one could have imagined that that what exactly would transpire in the days and the weeks ahead. Such as why, as we've already noted, Jesus has been hinting at at what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. And his disciples are continually confounded. What do you mean you're going to be betrayed and you're going to be killed? No one could have thought that that's what was going to happen. And that's indeed what happens. And here at the beginning of this week, as we we jump here at... Chapter 11, verse 1, we have what we now know as Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. But it's important that you see what's happening here as sort of the ultimate sort of conflict between the national and the political Jesus and the scriptural and the spiritual Jesus. They're coming to a head here at this moment. They're reaching critical mass, we might say. Because you have all of the national and political things that people wanted the Messiah to accomplish coming together with what Jesus was actually intending to accomplish. And they're coming to a head here at this moment. Because we've, as we've been noticing throughout the book of Mark so far, there's this tension being played out between those very things. What Jesus' ministry is actually about, remission of sins, and what people have been presuming his ministry is about, which is establishing a messianic kingdom, overthrowing Rome and all the like. 
This is the tension that's being played out. And it's being played out right here before our very eyes as Jesus enters the city. As he's entering Jerusalem. And such is why I think that this scene, this scene right at the beginning of chapter 11, the start of Holy Week, is perhaps one of the most fascinating but also frustrating scenes in the entire Bible. It's fascinating and frustrating at the same time because there's so many compelling details that are going on that are just happening in the scene and each of which indicates that there's a lot more that's happening here than meets the eye. There's a lot more that's being accomplished in this moment than what we just first see initially. And I think it's all there to show. All of this is to show, I think, that Jesus is accomplishing, his mission was accomplishing way more than anyone in proximity to him could ever think or imagine. He's accomplishing way more than they could ever think or imagine. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at this triumphal entry through three different perspectives. I want to look at it through the perspective of the cult, and the crowd, and the Christ. Because I think in each you will see... That royalty has been inverted. But in that we have redemption being established. Through this inverted royalty. So let's look at it really quickly. Because I'm going to look at this scene. First I want you to notice in these verses. just I want to highlight and, and just look at all of the references to this cult. That carries, that transports Jesus into the city. Look at verse 1 again. Let's get into it. Now when they drew near, verse 1, to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered into it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. He will send it back, essentially, is what he's saying. So Jesus is an apostle's. They are taking refuge in Bethany. It's the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, Jesus' perhaps closest friend. The city is roughly two miles away from the city proper in Jerusalem. And from there, Jesus sends two of his disciples, unnamed, but likely Peter is among them, to go and fetch this cult, which Jesus has predicted will be at a crossroads. In the King James it says, at the place where two ways meet. Here it says, outside of the street. Essentially, he sends them to a very public place to take this measly cult, which was to serve as Jesus' pseudo-stallion, so to speak, as he makes his triumphant entry into this city. And I want you to notice, just look at the words of Jesus in verses 2 and 3. And just notice this incredible dichotomy between what he says and and what he means. By that I mean, look at what he says. Because he says, go into this village opposite to you, which is Bethphage. And as soon as you have entered into it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. He's telling them exactly where this cult will be, what it will be like, where they can find it, no doubt evidencing his deity. Some people like to imagine or or surmise that perhaps Jesus has uh, perhaps made a deal or perhaps made arrangements with with this disciple here to make sure that this cult was there. Uh, We can surmise that if you want. But I tend to think that it's just Jesus being God, (laughs) 
Because he is. He knows where this cult will be. And he says, go there, find it. And it's exactly as he says it. The cult is there. Jesus is God. He knows where this cult will be. But also, at the same time, notice that Jesus is expressing his humanity too. Because notice in the next verse, he says, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord knows exactly where this cult will be, but he says also the Lord has need. He has need to borrow it. He has need to uh, get a loan from this disciple, or so to speak, of his cult. It's an expression of humanity. And here, right in this very uh, two expressions, we have the deity and the humanity of God, of Jesus Christ, at play, at work, right in front of us. He knows where it's going to be and expresses his need for it. He even includes the guarantee, so to speak, to sell this request, sell this loan. Hey, we're going to return it as soon as we're done with it. We're not going to just steal it. We're going to give it back, we promise. We promise we'll return it immediately, he says. I think it's fascinating. The Lord over all things, as Colossians will later talk about, as the one through whom everything consists, in that wonderful Christ hymn in Colossians chapter 1, that Lord has need of a cult, of a measly little foal. Of course, this is evidence, of course, right away of this incredible paradoxical power of Jesus Christ. This sort of inverted power, I might say, in which he is the sovereign ruler over all creation, yet he lowers himself to ride on the bank of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he says that though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty we might become rich. That's being displayed and illustrated for us right here as Jesus mounts this colt and rides into Jerusalem. And I think the emphasis on this animal is again showing this servant Messiah. That Jesus is the king who serves. He doesn't come in with this tyrannical dominant force. He comes in bearing peace. Peace that would come through his own demise. Again, that's Mark's theme. If you look at... um, some history surrounding this, that when rulers of Israel want to sort of present themselves to the people, they, their mode of transport, what they rode on was indicative of sort of what, of how their position would be seen. Uh, for example, if they wanted to present themselves as a military leader that would bring about dominance through force and through might and through military strength, they would ride on the back of a horse. And everyone would be able to see that that is a commanding captain of armies. And yet, here, instead, it's the back of a colt. So, and just, you can see references to this in Judges chapter 10 and 12 and other places. That if a leader, a minister, or excuse me, if a leader of the people of Israel wanted to present himself more as a servant or a peacemaker or a minister, he would ride on the back of a donkey or a colt. Such is what Jesus is doing here. 
No war horse for him, no legion of armies, no thoroughbred steed to carry him into the city. And this king of nations comes riding on a borrowed colt, a colt on loan, and he comes for everyone to see him. He doesn't make his entrance conspicuous. It's very uh, obvious for everyone to see exactly what's happening. He's affirming that he is the Messiah. An altogether different Messiah, perhaps, but nevertheless, he is the Messiah. And of course, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jump with me to Zechariah chapter 9. I want you to see this. Zechariah, if you go to Matthew and then go to the left, you'll find Malachi. And go to the left again, you'll find Zechariah. That's the easiest way I know how to find it. Zechariah chapter 9, there's this incredible, very accurate prophecy of the coming Messiah, the one who would come and bring restoration back to Israel. This is the prophecy of the coming king for Zion. If you look at Zechariah 9, look at verse 9. Notice what it says. Rejoice greatly, the prophet says, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Did you notice? The king of Zion, the prophesied anointed one that would come and deliver God's people, it says is coming lowly and riding on a colt. Having salvation in his hands. This is what Jesus is doing. He's not being very subtle, is he? He's not being very subtle with what he's trying to accomplish. The the, the triumphal entry was no, I I wrote this down, no covert operation. He wasn't trying to sneak in and weasel his way into Jerusalem. He was being very bold and brash with this statement. Such is why we had to note at at the beginning that he sent his disciples to a crossroads. To borrow this cult. He's not trying to sneak in like a ninja. He's coming in like the Messiah. The one prophesied of old. He's coming in for all to see. For all religious folk that might be in the crowd that day. To know that Zion's king has come. Riding on the back of a cult. But that leads me to the next Sort of perspective of this scene. Because I want you to notice too. The crowd that's here. If you go back to our text in Mark 11. As Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, crowds from all over the place start forming and surrounding him and forming a processional of sorts that marches into the city. But this is, of course, unlike any royal procession you have ever seen. This is anything that but regal. Think, think, we think about this scene as very indicative of people of God crying out for their Savior. But of course, think of this scene as perhaps a Roman might. 
You know, the Romans were everything to do with pomp and circumstance, with much majesty and royalty and strength and dignity. When their kings and conquerors came back into the city, it was met with much fanfare. And the fanfare of this scene is anything but. There's, again, there's no royal steed that leads the king, the conqueror, into the city. It's a cult. And it's a procession, not of warlords and dignitaries and noblemen. It's a processional of, uh, of peasants and those impoverished people of Jerusalem. It's a procession of poverty. And it's, instead of a cult... Or instead of a stallion, the king rides on the back of a borrowed colt. And instead of a red carpet, the crowds throw their filthy garments and nearby branches into the streets. Notice what it says. Look at verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is how Israel greets its king. With much worship and adoration, they're moved to it, no doubt. Look at verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This, of course, is not out of character. This isn't like uh, like you know a Hollywood musical where suddenly everyone breaks out into song and everyone knows exactly the lyrics of that song and is in perfect unison. It's not like that. This is very normal in this day for Jerusalem. This is a couple days before the Passover. They are in celebration mode, so to speak. A couple days before when Jerusalem, all of the city would celebrate Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and also the hope of future deliverance as well. This is what they're a few days away from reverencing and celebrating and, and, and feasting over. And so I have no doubts about it that as Jesus is entering the city that there are some in the crowd who are connecting the dots With what's happening and what they see in front of them. And what has been prophesied. So they cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! It's a word, Hosanna. That means, oh save, or please save. Come and save. It's a cry for deliverance. And salvation. But you see, here's the tragedy of this scene. Because these, this crowd... Is not crying out for salvation from sin. They're crying out for salvation from tyranny. They see this Jesus coming in perhaps. Fulfilling what they know of old. A long promised uh, prophecy of their coming uh, king. And what do they see? They see freedom and liberation from a a tyrannical force in Rome. They don't see salvation and deliverance from the sin which will lead to condemnation. They're not crying out for a savior. They're crying out for a king. A national and political king. Their cries are indicative of their national hope of restoration. They don't see him anything more. They don't see in Jesus anything more than just a king who would sit on a throne. And it's in that way that this crowd is representative of the tragedy that has befallen God's people, all of mankind. 
Mankind who is blind to its need for a savior. Could you imagine anything more tragic than being ignorant of your need for salvation? And such is what moves Jesus here in this scene. If you go to Luke, you don't have to go there, but what is recorded in Luke is that Jesus ascends and he overlooks the city, if you remember, and he cries, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, he laments over the city. Why? There's several reasons, of course, but I think among them is this, that they were crying for a king and a leader, and they weren't crying for a savior. They were crying for liberation. They weren't crying for justification, which leads to eternal life. Their faith had been lost. And that's exactly though why Christ came. Which leads me to highlight the last sort of perspective in this scene. Which is the Christ. Look again. Look at verse uh, 9. Then those who went out before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. That comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem. And into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things. As the hour was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. I think most curious. Of all of the details in this scene. Are the actions of Jesus himself. Because if you remember. um, Or. Just if you remember throughout all of Jesus' ministry, as we've noted so far in Mark, he, there has been this uh, very sort of a blatant uh, dampening and discouraging of public outcry of his identity as the Messiah. Remember from several instances when, uh, when those he heals or saves or the demons perhaps who are crying out want to speak out his name as the Messiah, he silences them. On several occasions, he shuts the mouths of those who would testify to his Messiahship. And here, isn't it curious that Jesus is drawing so much attention to himself as the Messiah, being very blatant and bold and brash with that assertion? He's actually exciting and inviting messianic enthusiasm for himself. He wants people to see, I am the king. I'm the king of Zion who has come to claim his throne. He's okay with the whole city, seeing, whole city noticing that. He almost inspires the public outcry that their long lost king and deliverer had come. At a time also we have to notice this. When societal unrest was at an all time high. You see Rome and their occupation of Israel was always dubious of the religious fervor that permeated the city and its people. So when they had high religious feasts and holidays and celebrations, it obviously raised the tension to uh, degrees beyond 10 with just unrest and angst and anxiety, especially at Passover. Because what is Passover celebrating? Again, it's celebrating and remembering the deliverance of Jehovah of God's people in the past and the coming deliverance in the future. If you're any sort of Roman authority and you have the people over whom you are ruling over celebrating a day when you will no longer be an authority, it obviously raises the tension during that holiday. And here there's this certain amount of tension that has overlaid the city 
Because it's nearing Passover. Anxiety and unease is reaching a boiling point. Not only that, the plot to kill Jesus has already been in motion for several, several years now. And Jesus is returning to the same location. The same location where he previously resurrected Lazarus. Obviously that creates its own amount of fervor in and of itself. This guy raising a guy who had already been dead for two days. Raising him back to life again by just the power of his words. There's a lot of noise and clamor surrounding this scene as Jesus arrives to Bethany. That coupled with the political unease over the Passover made this a time that seemed the most unlikely time for Jesus to present himself as the Messiah. You're basically going on a suicide mission, Jesus. You're doing something that will surely get you in trouble. And I think that's sort of Jesus' point. The imminence of the cross, he wants them to see that he is the fulfillment of all of it. Passover too. He's the true and better Passover lamb. He's the true and better king. And the pressing and the momentous weight of Calvary is just his prevailing thought and motivation. And such is why almost all the teachings that we are going to cover in the next couple chapters before the cross are going to be so solely focused on the cross. His prevailing thought. And he's openly now and publicly assuming the role of the Messiah. And he's calling sort of the bluff of those conspiring against him. (laughs) He's trying to see, really, are they going to follow through with their threats? with With their plot to get rid of him? But again, imagine the awkwardness of this scene. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of one of the Israelites here in this moment. And just how awkward it would be that that you're crying out, Hosanna, save, come our deliverer. And you have in front of you what you expect to be the coronation of your long and promised king. And instead of ascending to the throne, which you think he's going to do, he enters into the temple and he doesn't sort of uh, affirm everyone. He pronounces judgment on them. He pronounces judgment on those within the the temple. And your supposed Messiah is here. Instead of rallying everyone to his cause. And leading an assault against the occupying forces of Rome. He judges everyone in the center of religious life. And he laments over the state of the city that he has come to redeem. The people he has come to save. Imagine the awkwardness of that moment. That he's uh, totally upset and done an unexpected thing. He has inverted, if I can use that word again, what you were expecting him to do. He's come now and he's now dealing with judgment on what you thought was going to happen. We can see now why this crowds who are crying out Hosanna would just in a few days be scandalized enough to the point that they would cry out, crucify him. Because he didn't do what we expected him to do. 
Because he didn't live up to the things that we wanted him to accomplish. Crucify that man. Get rid of him. You can see almost how their shouts of praise can turn to shouts of execution in just a few short days. It's always stunning to me. That these in this crowd would likely fill that same crowd around the cross. These who lined the streets would be in the audience which looked at Jesus as he breathed and gasped for life on a cross of Roman torture and torment. And why? Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted. He didn't do what they expected. Because his mission was so much bigger than they expected. His mission was so much better than they expected. Jesus' mission was altogether different than anyone in this moment could ever have thought or imagined. Because what drove Jesus as the king of Israel back into Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross was not the, the foe that Rome represented. It was an enemy that was altogether more dangerous and formidable and damning than Rome. It was the enemy of sin and death and the devil. This is what drove Jesus. What drove him and motivated him is not just occupying Rome and restoring Israel. It's killing death. It's putting death to death and defeating all of the sins of mankind by taking them on himself. It's a mission that they didn't expect. One writer says it this way, Jesus' journey into Jerusalem that day had an even larger foe in mind. His goal was not to overthrow the political powers of the moment, but the collective weight of guilt of all the past, present, and future participants of sin. That's what was on his mind. That's what drove him into the city and drove him ultimately to the cross. Because he was God's son. He was man's savior. He's the one who could withstand the weight of all the sin and all of the guilt and all of the iniquity of all of the people who had already been dead and all the people who would live. And yes, including you and me, he can accomplish salvation for everyone who has ever lived. And that's exactly what he did. This is the bigger mission that Jesus was intending to accomplish. Salvation. Not just liberation from a tyrannical ruler, but salvation from sin in an eternity in hell. Rescue from eternal separation from his very presence. This is why Jesus was so disinterested in the fanfare that many desired to give him. Because his sole thought was death and resurrection. His sole sort of thing that was filling his mind, even as he was triumphantly entering into the city, was not to usurp Roman authority. It was triumphant because he was about to accomplish all righteousness. That's what makes this triumphant. 
is triumphant only as we look back onto it as Jesus has been ascended. Because why this triumphal entry begins the week that would accomplish all righteousness. The righteousness by which the law is fulfilled on your behalf and on mine. The righteousness which leads to justification in the death of this king. Such is why, if you go back to Zechariah chapter 9 again, let me read those verses again. I want you to see that Jesus does fulfill this prophecy. Again, in a way which was unexpected. Because, look at it again. I'm going to read those verses again. 9 through 13. Zechariah 9. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Did you see in verse 10? The prophecy there of Jesus' kingdom and dominion. Did you notice its expanse? He says you are going to rule over sea to sea. From the river, the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Your peace and your salvation. The king of all is going to bring it over all the earth. This is what Jesus does through his death and resurrection. He makes peace with God the Father on your behalf and mine. And he establishes a kingdom. A kingdom that is bought by his blood. A kingdom and dominion that shall be from sea to sea. Not just in the confines of Israel. But of all those who are part of the kingdom by faith. This is the unexpected mission of Jesus as he enters the city. This is what he's intending in focusing on accomplishing. He's showing you that he's the world's king and savior. This is the inverted royalty but also the uncanny grace of our father. As seen in Jesus The anointed one. The king of Zion. Let us pray.